Amen. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Morris's. If you've got a Bible, you want to open to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to finish Genesis 3 this morning, and it's not as though you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, and then somehow the book of Genesis like makes this radical shift and is different after this point, but Genesis 1, 2, and 3 sort of function as a unit, and so some of the goal this morning is going to be to use, take the last five verses and see the way that the ending of Genesis chapter 3 sort of wraps up a lot of what has happened in, in all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. So we're going to kind of work with the whole there while we also look at those five specific verses. One thing that as, as humans uh, we sort of get easily excited about is anytime someone does something that's, that's like particularly impressive feat of human strength or ingenuity or inventiveness or skill or whatever the case might be. So the person that you hear about who like lifts a car off of someone who's trapped underneath and saves their life, like it's, we're like, oh, cool, they saved their life, but they lifted a car. Like that ends up grabbing the headlines or anytime somebody sets a world record. So did you know that the world record for holding your breath is 24 minutes? That's crazy. Uh, the world record for staying awake was set by a high school kid who stayed awake for 11 consecutive days. I don't advocate trying either of those two things. But we're easily impressed by that. There's a man from uh, Great Britain who memorized over 22,000 digits of pi and recited them from memory. It took him over five hours to do it, 22,514 digits of pi. Those things are amazing. To us. We're also really impressed by people who do something for the very first time. So in 1953, Hedmund Ilary and Tenzing Norgay summited Everest for the very first time. One year later, in 1954, Roger Bannister finally broke through the barrier on the four minute mile. In 1969, humans walked on the moon for the very first time. Like we're easily captivated by feats of human effort and human will or human strength or whatever the case might be. So much so, uh, that we end up looking at our children and saying, you can do anything you set your mind to. And then we're like wildly shocked when they get into like young adulthood and they're totally disillusioned by everything that they've experienced up to that point. Why? Well, because you told them they could do anything they set their mind to. Your genetics gave them a five foot four body and they can't figure out why they're not playing in the NBA. Like you said, I could do anything. <laughs> what happened? We're so captivated by that idea that anything is possible if a human being just tries hard enough, works hard enough, whatever the case might be. There's one thing for certain that all of the human effort and will and ingenuity cannot produce. And that is to take what is broken as we see it in Genesis chapter three and restore it on our own. We cannot do that. But what we're going to see this morning is that God's grace provides what human effort cannot produce. If you've got Genesis chapter 3 open there in front of you, I'm going to do what we've done all throughout Genesis 3, even though we're just looking at the last five verses. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is helpful for us to hear it all in context. So if you've got Genesis open in front of you, you want to follow along, this is Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that by your power, through your word, the presence of the Holy Spirit here among us, God, that you would open our hearts to see and hear the truth of who you are. God, that you would open our hearts to see and to hear the beauty of the gospel, to be encouraged, or challenged, or convicted, to be comforted or confronted. God, that you would open our hearts that we might be changed more into the likeness of Christ. God, would you do that work in and through your word according to your spirit at work here among us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. We don't need to spend a ton of time here, but it's worth pointing out that there's a certain kind of irony that takes place here in Genesis 3, verse 20. If you go just one verse up to verse 19, what did God just tell Adam would happen as a result of his sin? That he would die. 
You're going to work the ground until you return from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. That's God's pronouncement that because of sin, death is now entering into the world. And then Adam looks over at Eve and says, you're the mother of the living. What's going on there? God's just pronounced a consequence, or some would say it's a curse. And the curse is that you as human beings, as like a species, you're going to die. And then Adam looks over at Eve and says, you're the mother of everyone that lives. It's an interesting irony that takes place in back-to-back verses there. The last time Adam did any naming as it relates to Eve was actually back in chapter 2. In an outburst of poetry after God forms Eve, Adam proclaims, Ah, at last, this one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she is from me or of me. Here, in chapter 3, everything is changing as a result of sin. The dynamic of human relationship is changing. The dynamic of human relationship with God is changing. The nature of work is changing. The nature of child rearing is changing. Everything is being broken or stained by sin. It's as though like the very cosmos is kind of falling apart before our eyes. And in an outburst of faith, Adam now looks at Eve and says, you are the mother of all the living. Why do I say that's an outburst of faith? Well, because in the pronouncements that God has made when he talks to Eve, he promises offspring. And that one of those offspring will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Then he looks at Adam and says, you're going to die from the dust you came to the dust you will return. And so Adam grabs hold of what God has said, that we're going to have offspring. And he looks at Eve and he says, you're the mother of all of the living. Adam, in the middle of one of his very worst moments, right? I mean, up to this point, it doesn't seem like bad stuff has been happening in the garden. And all of a sudden, everything appears to be bad. Like I said, it's like everything is sort of falling apart in the cosmos there. And Adam, in the midst of that moment, grabs hold of a promise that God has made in his word. And he looks at the woman, which is what she's been referred to up to this point, and he says, you're going to be the mother of the living. For all of the yuck that Adam brought into the world, there's something worth pointing out here. Brother or sister in Christ, in the middle of your worst moments, choose to take God at his word. When it seems like everything is falling apart around you, whether as a result of your own creation and the consequences that come into your life as a result of your own sin or as a result of stuff that's completely out of your control, when it just seems like everything is falling apart, choose to grab hold of God's word in faith. Stake your life, your hope, your joy, your peace on the unwavering steadfastness of God. Grab hold of his promises and repeat them to yourself as much as you need to until they become truth that actually guides your life. His word says that in the middle of your worst moments, when you cry out to him in prayer, 
Jesus says he's not going to give you snakes when you ask for fish. He's not going to give you stones when you ask for bread. God's word says he's working in you a glory that far outweighs all of your pain and all of your temptation and all of your sorrows and all of your struggles. God's word says that he has plans that are for your soul's good in light of eternity. God's word says that you can rejoice in the middle of your sufferings because God is using that suffering to produce endurance and that endurance to produce character and that character to produce hope and that he has secured the certainty of that hope through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's word says that you will not stand condemned in your moment of judgment because you've received God's grace in Jesus. When everything's falling apart, in the middle of your very worst moments, choose to take God at his word, to grab hold in faith of something that you maybe cannot see or your heart might even have trouble believing in the moment. Job's cry in Job chapter 13 can be ours even in our most bleak circumstances. As Job is having some conversation back and forth with his friends in the midst of all of his suffering, he cries out, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Yet I will rejoice in him, your translation might say. Yet I will praise him, your translation might say. In the middle of Jesus' ministry, he's attracted a massive crowd as a result of his miracles and his teachings, and he delivers a hard teaching. And as people are literally just like turning their backs and fleeing from Jesus, from this large crowd, he looks at the 12 disciples and he says, are you gonna leave me too? And they look back at Jesus and they say, where would we go? For you have the words of life. In the middle of your worst moments, brother or sister in Christ, where else would you go? to something lesser than him? To something that has proven that it cannot provide the satisfaction that your soul craves? To something that has let you down over and over and over and over again? No, brother or sister in Christ, stake your hope on the unwavering steadfastness of the Lord in his word, even when life is at its very darkest. Verses 21 The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So our sort of main point has two parts. God's grace provides what human effort cannot produce. We're going to work with the first part of that here. Again, I want to tie some stuff together that uh, the end of Genesis chapter 3 is sort of pulling all these threads from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So back in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created. We said that the verb there for created is something that only God does. The verb is bara, B-A-R-A. Only God baras. Humans don't do that. Here we have a different word. The Lord God made. And your English translation actually does a good job here of trying to draw a distinction that would be obvious in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created. Here we have God making. The verb here is asa. That has appeared two other times in relation to God doing something. One of those is that God says in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Asa. Another time, we're told that God saw all that he had made, Asa, and it was very good, 
indeed. That word means to like manufacture or to produce or to perform a course of action. So why is that worth pointing out? God saw all that he had made, that he had produced or manufactured, and it was very good indeed. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, something has happened here in Genesis chapter 3 with the coming in of sin that has taken that very good state and broken it. And it's happened as it relates to this man that was made in God's image, that God uniquely loves. And so what is God going to do? Well, he's going to perform a course of action. He's going to do something on Adam and Eve's behalf. And what does he do? He makes clothing from skins for them. They had attempted to do this for themselves, right? They sin, they realize they're naked, and that is the first and immediate, obvious uh, consequence of sin. Adam and Eve realize they're naked. They have shame for that, so they want to cover themselves from one another, but also from the Lord. So they take fig leaves and they sew them together in order to make clothes. How effective was that? Not very, and Adam and Eve know it, right? Because they sew their fig leaves together, and then as the Lord is moving through the garden at the time of the evening breeze, they dive into the trees, right? Like the fig leaves aren't doing the job here. We need to hide ourselves even more. God, recognizing the insufficiency of what Adam and Eve had attempted to do in their own effort, moves in grace to provide something better for them. Rather than clothing made from the leaves of a tree, he makes clothing for them for them from the skin of an animal. Adam and Eve's great human effort and ingenuity here. Ah, we're naked. This is bad. We'll sew fig leaves together and make clothes. That effort is lacking. And so God in his grace provides on their behalf. And note what he's providing. It's not just clothing for Adam and Eve. It is that, but it's something bigger, something deeper than that. In his grace... God is providing the covering for the shame of their sin. That's what he's doing. You feel shame because you're naked. You tried to solve that. We all recognize it's insufficient. You dove into the trees when I was moving through the garden. I will provide for you something better. And so he takes the skins of an animal and he makes clothing for them. If Genesis 3.15 that we looked at a couple weeks ago is like the first gospel Satan will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring, but the woman's offspring is going to crush his head. That's the first announcement of the gospel. I'm going to call this sort of the second, or maybe at the very least, it's a dim shadow of what the gospel is ultimately going to do, because not only is God in his power going to crush the head of the serpent, but God in his grace is also going to cover the shame of our sin. And his grace is going to provide what our effort could not produce. Okay, now I'm gonna preach a little bit more, but I think you can see where we're headed here. God in his grace does something for Adam and Eve that they had attempted to do for themselves, but it didn't work. It was insufficient. And so God provides what their effort could not produce. Look at verses 22 to 24. This is deliberative, sort of like at the end of chapter one, 
And God said, let us make man in our image. It's like he's having a conversation in his heart or his mind, however we would position that. That happens again here in Genesis chapter three. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The result of what happens here is clear. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. If you've got an NIV, it says that they were banished. He banished them. They're sent away from the tree of life, which is now going to be guarded so that they cannot return to the tree and eat from it. They get another reminder of their mortality. You're separated from the tree of life. They get a picture of the reality that sin creates separation from God. It's going to be guarded now, so you can't go back. But there's some nuance happening in the verbiage that I think is worth pointing out. Again, we're tying things together from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because Adam and Eve have sinned, disobeying God, rivaling him and wanting to be like God, God says that they must not be able to reach out, verse 22, and take from the tree of life. And so then in response, verse 23, so the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The verb, therefore, to reach out and to send him away is the same verb. So to just render it as literally as possible, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever, so the Lord God put the Garden of Eden out of his reach. Again, Human effort will not suffice here. Everlasting life is not something that any of our feats of human effort will ever be able to grab hold of. It was easy for Adam and Eve to reach out and grab the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it will be impossible for them to reach out and grab hold of the tree of life. They cannot do it anymore. It's out of reach. So he sends him away from the Garden of Eden. He puts it out of reach to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out or banished him and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, think back to Genesis chapter two. In Genesis two, we talked about the tenderness of God forming Adam. That he It's like he reaches his hands down into the dust and he forms this man. And then we talked about the sort of like intimate proximity of the Lord, this picture of him coming down like face to face with Adam and pushing air through his nostrils into his lungs. Then he placed or he delivered or he rested Adam in the garden so that Adam could do what? Work it and watch over it. Guard it and keep it or keep it and cultivate it. Now catch what happens in God's act of judgment. The verbiage is intentional. God sends Adam away to work the ground from which he was taken. But the pronouncements have already told us what that experience is going to be like. It's going to be tiresome and painful toil. You're going to eat the plants of the field, but it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. It's going to produce thorns and thistles, but it will still provide. And then... 
notice what else is there. He drove the man out, stationed the cherubim, the flaming whirling sword, east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. It's the same word that Adam was supposed to do in the garden. Work it and watch over it. Sin has stained everything here. Adam's going to work the ground outside the garden. It's going to be via painful, tiresome labor. And he's forfeited the role of guarding or watching the garden. That's going to be given over to some other created being, a cherubim, which is a kind of angelic being. Cherubim's got a whirling, flaming sword, we're told. My only mental reference for a whirling, flaming sword comes from Mario Brothers. Think original Nintendo here. You got to the end of one of the worlds, and you had to go into Bowser's castle in order to save Peach repeatedly, because no matter how many times you saved her, she kept getting recaptured. So frustrating. So you go into Bowser's castle, and uh, one of the things that the game introduces there in all of those end-of-world levels are these, like, four flaming balls of fire that would, like, circle around, and you either had to jump over it or duck under it. Whirling flaming sword. That's all I can picture. There's one of those Bowser's castles things just spinning outside the Garden of Eden with two cherubim standing there so that Adam and Eve can't get back to the tree. There was supposed to be this incredibly beautiful partnership whereby in bearing the image of God, Adam and Eve watched over and worked the garden. Now, sin is staining everything. You're going to continue to work the land, but it's going to be outside of this garden. It's going to be tiresome and painful and difficult, and you do not get to watch this or guard this place any longer. I'm giving that to some other being, a cherubim. As one commentator puts it, every bit of this last verse gives the impression of the active exclusion of the sinner from the garden. At this point, if you sat down and you read all of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there ought to be a profound sort of sadness in the reader because what was beautiful and perfect in Genesis chapter 2 is now broken and polluted by the end of Genesis 3. Sin has cost Adam and Eve a lot. It's cost them access to the tree of life. It's now out of reach. It's cost them all of the consequences or pronouncements that happen in verses 14 through 19, strife in human relationship, difficulty in bearing children, painful, tiresome, toilsome work, hostility between those who choose to follow the Lord and those who do not, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. It's cost them life in the garden. That's what we're seeing here. And it's cost them the joyful privilege of watching over the presence of the Lord there in Eden. And since this moment in Genesis chapter three, human hearts have longed for the return to Eden, quote unquote. Human hearts long for the restoration of everything that sin has broken. That's why... Believer in Jesus or not, wherever you find yourself, skeptical, completely agnostic, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, when you watch the news and you see all that is broken in the world, your heart aches. Something inside of you says, this is not how it's supposed to be. When sickness or death comes pressing into your life or into the life of someone that is close to you or that you love, Believer or not, you look at that and your heart aches. It says, it's not supposed to be like this. When we're tired and weary from long days at work, from strife in our relationships, from the difficulty of raising children, our hearts just kind of ache. God, it hurts. Life here is hard. 
I don't like it. When the good culture making of humans gets warped into sinful, dark, broken activity, our hearts ache. As pastors, one of the things that all of us on staff get asked to do from time to time or to perform funerals. And sometimes those are for people from here within our congregation or they're adjacent to our congregation. And sometimes it's from people who just, they've had someone pass away and for whatever, you know, they just feel like I'm supposed to do the funeral in a church. And so we get phone calls and they say, can we host a funeral there? And we need someone to do it. And in conversation with those families, sometimes you find out that this is an individual who really loves the Lord and like there will be pockets of celebration inside of this funeral because we know that this person has gone to be in the presence of the Lord. And other times in the conversations back and forth with these individuals, you get the sense that they're just literally at a church because we need an indoor space to host the funeral. And no matter which side of that equation you're interacting with. At some point in the preparation, a family member, a friend, someone will make some sort of reference to, well, at least we know they're in a better place right now. To which in my head, I always want to say, how do you know that? Where is your certainty? What does better mean? On what basis is something better available? Like, what, how, put all the pieces together for me. It's a universal thing in the human heart that, ah, if we pass away, we get released from all the difficulty here and we go to someplace, quote unquote, better. Because whether we can name it or not, we want to go back to Eden or forward to whatever comes after this, because there's got to be something better after this. We want to be back into God's presence, back into a place that's free from the weight and the yuck of sin. We want to be freed from dying and decaying bodies that experience pain and difficulty and emotional trauma in a world that's just full of brokenness. And we've been trying to chart the way back to that ever since Genesis chapter 3. But it's out of reach. And so the second part of our phrase here, human effort cannot produce what our hearts ultimately long for. And human beings have come up with lots of different ways to try to like effort ourselves back into a state like the Garden of Eden. It's like religious activity will do it. You just have enough quiet times, attend church enough, read your Bible enough, tithe enough, volunteer enough, evangelize enough, commit yourself to a life of ministry, and then you'll be right with the Lord and everything will be fine. Nope. When you get to heaven, they're not going to check your church attendance. When you get to heaven, they're not going to open up the book of judgment and it's going to have a list of how many times you read the Bible through and that's the means by which they decide whether or not you come in or stay out. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be, do you have a heady understanding of perfect doctrine? And if so, you pass the test, we'll let you through the gates. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be some sort of Catholic sense of, did you complete the seven sacraments? It's not going to be based on your effort. Because your effort cannot produce what would be necessary to reach back out and grab hold of the fruit of the tree of life. Legalism which would be like obedience to the biblical commands 
in such a way that you obey enough that you're accepted before God. Legalism isn't going to do it. Moralism, which would be saying slide the Bible out of the way. If you just do more good things, however you define good, then you do bad things, however you define bad, and the scales balance in the right way, you'll get to go into heaven. That's not going to do it. Enough like self-flagellation or self-condemnation or self-loathing over your sin. It's never going to do it. If I just feel bad enough about sinning, I'll be right with Lord. Nope. The creation of the right kind of society via political or social means or alignment with the right causes, that won't be enough. In all those ways and hundreds of others, Humanity has been standing trying to reach back out to the tree of life and take hold of its fruit and get itself back to Eden, but it's out of reach. No amount of human effort will ever put it back in our grasp. No feat of human effort will make right all that sin has made wrong. Only God's grace can do that. His grace provides what human effort cannot produce. One of the things that we've done a few times, kind of a rhythm over the course of this series, is that We've taken a pattern that we see in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, and we kind of drag its way forward through Scripture to the cross. I want to do that one more time here. Genesis 3 ends with the cherubim. Sounds plural, like maybe there's two, three, four of them. I'm not 100% sure. And the Bowser's Castle thing whirling there at the edge of the Garden of Eden. Guarding the way to the tree of life. Guarding the way to eternal life and also to the presence of the Lord who dwells there in the garden. I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record here, but one of the things that's important to remember is that Adam and Eve didn't get booted from the garden and then jot down in their journal everything that happened. This book of Genesis is delivered to the Israelite people via Moses when they're gathered there at Mount Sinai. So he goes up on the mountain, he comes down with the law, that would be like the book of Leviticus, but he also comes down with the books of Genesis and Exodus. In the back half of the book of Exodus, if, you're, if you've ever done like your Bible reading plan that works through the Old Testament, the start of Exodus is all the like plagues and it's the things that you think of in Exodus. The back half of the book of Exodus is a lot of laws and also two repeating descriptions. One description of what this tabernacle is supposed to look like, and then immediately following that, almost verbatim, the description of the Israelite people building the tabernacle that they got the pattern for. So we're going to put a couple charts up here. If you're a note taker, don't feel like you've got to draw the chart. Just Google it later. It's probably in your study Bible. But I want to point something out on here. So this is what that tabernacle would look like. You can look in Genesis or Exodus chapter 26. You get the description. There's this uh, sort of fence made up of these curtains and poles that separate out an area. And inside that area, there's an altar where sacrifices are supposed to be brought. And then this tent. And inside the tent, it's split into two rooms. There's an initial room. And then there's the holy of holies or the most holy place at the back. The curtain and the, the fencing and the tent itself is designed to keep the Israelite people away from the place where the Lord's presence dwells, which is that back sort of square room. I said in a previous sermon that the Levites, they're the ones who are the Israelite priests who would perform the rituals and duties there at the tabernacle. They're assigned to watch and to work the tabernacle. 
And in the description of what these curtains are supposed to look like, there's a design that's supposed to be woven into them. It's a design of a certain creature. Any guesses as to what that creature would be? Cherubim. So on the curtain that separates that long rectangle from the little square inside of that tent, every time, once a year, a Levite priest goes to go into the back part of that tent, what is he staring at? A reminder that cherubim block the way of humanity's presence from the Lord. Fast forward a couple of thousand years. David, the king, is discontent with the fact that the Lord dwells in a tent while he lives in a palace and he wants to build a temple for the Lord. He doesn't get to do it. His son Solomon does. In 1 Kings chapter 6, you get the description of this incredible temple complex that Solomon has built where the glory of the Lord will dwell with the Israelite people in Jerusalem. It's got this big outer court where the nations can come and worship the Lord. It's got an inner court where only the Jewish people can go. And inside that inner court, there's this vestibule that would have kind of stairs up to the actual building of the temple with these storehouses, but it would also have the altar. So when you brought your sacrifice to the temple, you didn't go inside the building, you stood outside. Why? You can't go inside. Only the Levites can go into that holy place. And then there's a big curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And this time, in 1 Kings 6, we're told that the middle of that curtain has doors to it, big wooden doors. And carved into those doors is a very particular image. What do you think it's of? Cherubim. Once a year, when the priest goes to go back into that back section and offer this sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the entire people of Israel, he stands face to face with these big doors plated in gold, and on them are these two cherubim blocking the way to the Lord's presence. Fast forward a few thousand years, this guy named Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, and he says, I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, and you are the branches. I have the bread of life. I have living water. And the religious elite of the day are like, this guy is blasphemous. He claims that he's God. He says he's going to destroy the temple where the Lord dwells. We've got to kill him. So they put him on a cross. And in Matthew 27, Matthew is very intentional to tell his Jewish audience that as Jesus breathes his last, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What happens at the temple? The curtain tears. And every Jewish person would read that and say, the cherubim are gone. I can walk straight into the presence of the Lord now because they're not there with a whirling, flaming Bowser's Castle thing any longer. How is that possible? What do you mean I can just walk into the presence of the Lord? Well, because God's grace has now provided what your effort could never produce. All throughout the Old Testament, I'm not interested in your bulls and rams. I'm not after the blood of bulls and goats. I want contrite hearts, broken spirits. But the law can't produce that. In fact, the New Testament is very clear to tell you that the law was only given not to make you perfect, but to illustrate the fact that you are sinful. And so God provides in his grace what all of your human effort could never produce. And what is that? Access to the presence of the Lord. When Jesus dies, 
the cherubim move aside. Paul picks up that theme and he absolutely runs with it. Because one of the things that's happened to Genesis chapter 3 is that these cherubim are guarding the way to the tree. Another thing that's happened is that God has made clothing from skins for the man and his wife. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells his mostly Jewish audience that no amount of obedience to the law could ever undo the effects of sin. And then he says this, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Fast forward a few verses. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. And there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. God's grace provides what human effort cannot produce. Access has been made available and you've been given clothing again. Only this time, it's the clothes of Christ's righteousness. And it's available to all, Jewish or not, male or female, slave or free. That's the good news we talk about when we talk about the gospel. The cherubim have been removed and you can have access. He's made you new clothes and it's the clothing of Christ's righteousness. Ray Ortland Jr. describes receiving the gospel this way. He says, the gospel is good news for broken people that we can be made right with God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit received with the empty hands of faith. You can stop striving and receive that today. Brother or sister in Christ, you can stop trying to earn what God has already given to you. You can sink back into the work of Jesus and daily receive God's gracious provision that is sufficient to meet your heart's every need and every longing. What was broken in the garden has been restored in Jesus. It is being restored in Jesus. And it will be restored in Jesus. We sing a song here every once in a while, and in the last verse it says something that maybe you've always wondered, what in the world am I even singing? We sing, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless stand before the throne. No amount of human effort could dress you in the right clothing necessary to stand faultless there before the throne, but God's grace has provided what your effort cannot produce and is provided in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing.